I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And I want you to humor me in a hypothetical. Imagine it's 2017. You've been given the task of running a presidential campaign for 2020. Your candidate has no previous political experience and zero name recognition with the public. You have to help get them on stage at the first Democratic primary debate on June 27, 2019. Not only that, you have to get them to the debates six more times. So at the end, they're one of only seven candidates on stage in a race that's going to field 29 contenders. Hell of a long shot, right? But our guest this week did exactly that and wrote a behind-the-scenes look that also serves as a how-to guide for the next hopefuls willing to bet against the odds. Zach Grauman is the former campaign manager for Andrew Yang's presidential campaign and the author of Long Shot, How Political Nobodies Took Andrew Yang National and the New Playbook That Let Us Build a Movement. Zach, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Michael. Good to be here. Well, what a coincidence. It's good to have you. So I have a little bit of a lengthy opening here because it is such a pleasure to talk with you. For the same reason, it was a joy to read your book. As a little bit of background for you and our listeners, my first exposure to Andrew, and by extension, the presidential campaign you were managing at the time, was via the Joe Rogan podcast in February of 2019. I don't think I'm alone in that regard. To our listeners, wherever you might land on the political spectrum, if you're interested at all in politics and our democratic process, at some point in your life, you have come across a candidate who had an impact on you that was characteristically different from other candidates. Now, the reason why that person impacted you the way that they did, those are going to be specific to you. But for me, that person, that candidate was Andrew Yang. He was able to speak to important issues facing our economy in a way that was wonky, but refreshingly unpolished and understood technology on a fundamental level that I had never seen before. More than anything, and I think this goes without saying, my biography and Andrew's are quite different in many ways. I saw myself in him. There was a line from Andrew's closing statement in the fifth Democratic debate in Atlanta, Georgia in 2019, (laughs) as he was explaining the problems facing our country and how to solve them. He said, quote, now my first move was not to run for president of the United States because I am not insane, end quote. And (laughs) the thing is, every other candidate for president I'd ever seen just looked like they had wanted the job their entire life, while Andrew kind of looked like he was doing it out of last resort. And during the course of our conversation, I'd love for you to share with our audience how a campaign team that in August of 2018 consisted of five people with an average age of 26 and a, quote, combined years of political experience that totaled exactly zero, end quote, less than $75,000 in the bank, a campaign logo that Business Insider called an abomination, and a stump speech that felt more like a PowerPoint presentation, given to a small office full of wary onlookers, reaches a point where by October of 2019, was raising hundreds of thousands of dollars a day, had 100 paid staff members, were holding rallies to 7,000 plus supporters at a time, with 3 million followers across social media, and declared by CNN, quote, the hottest 2020 candidate this side of Elizabeth Warren, end quote. Or in your words from the book, quote, our ragtag and inexperienced campaign team outlasted and outperformed four senators, four governors, seven members of Congress, two mayors, and one cabinet secretary, end quote. Well, thanks for having me. It's fun to hear that said out loud because it just brings you back like this was a journey. So good to be with you. Happy to unpack. And I think my big message for your listeners as we go is like for us to do that, 
when we objectively had no business doing that, we had to have been on to something. And so I wrote the book, not only because the story was fun, but also because I just thought there was stuff we learned along the way. And we did that our competitors weren't doing that certain businesses and organizations aren't doing now that they should be doing because the games essentially changed, right? The internet, social media, and its effect on us have changed the way we operate both politically in business and marketing and the works. So excited to chat. Yeah. And to your point there, Zach, I think there was a lot of synergy between how Andrew's campaign, the campaign you ran with Andrew, and how businesses can run in the 21st century are very much alike. The ways in which a campaign is run, a brand identity is created. You talk a lot about brand identity in the book, which we'll get to in a second. How news is spread is fundamentally different in 2022, or in your case, back in 2018, 2019, than it was even five, 10 years prior. And that's what was really interesting about your book was how you were able to leverage these fundamental changes that were happening specifically on the technological level so that you could get Andrew Yang from a name recognition of basically zero to a name recognition that put him on the primary debate stage along folks like Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and others. So before we get to October 1st of 2019, a seminal date in the book, I think we need to start all the way back in 2010 when you had to choose between two job offers that would take your life in entirely different directions either working with special needs kids in New Orleans for Teach for America for about 35 grand a year, or working on Wall Street at UBS Wealth Management for six figures. Now, ever since you were young, you wanted to make positive change in the world, but you were fresh out of college and $200,000 in debt. I very much relate to that. Walk us through your decision 12 years ago and how that ultimately put you on the path to meeting Andrew in 2014. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting background. My mom was a teacher. My mom was actually a special ed teacher. And my dad was an engineer, like a builder. Some entrepreneurial vibes, but was the bigger provider of the family, right? Um, but it was a middle-class family. But I always grew up like interested in the like intersection of nonprofits and for-profits, right? Like, the builder in me like solved problems, like the engineer in me, but also like the bleeding heart, like my mom, like save the world type. And I was very curious how they work together. And then, yeah, to your point, I had these two job offers. One was to save the world and one was to make money. You know, it felt like, like I either could do good or do well, right? I couldn't, I just hated this decision. I imagine many listening to this, the more I've talked about this with friends and colleagues and such, this is a common problem in the American capitalist economy, right? You can go make money and not love what you do, or you go do something that matters on a human level, but it doesn't pay well, particularly. So as much as it was like a painful decision, it was easy enough because I had a ton of debt. <laughs> like, and TF- TFA, they're great. Teacher America, they do give you some student loan subsidies, but it's not, it wasn't 200 grand's worth, but that way. And even when I got the Wall Street salary, it took me like eight years, seven and a half years or so to pay. <laughs> it was a bear, right? When I worked on Wall Street, I started volunteering a lot. I was passionate about education, started volunteering in a school down in Brooklyn, and I ended up starting an org called Suit Up. Suit Up helps increase career awareness for kids. And we do these business competitions like UBS. We sucked at volunteering. We do park cleanups and soup kitchens. And the kids I was working with, they didn't always know why they were there, right? Many of them wanted to be like an athlete or a pop star, like didn't really have any sort of real purpose to why math class mattered for, let's call it college or a career. So we do these one-day business competitions where we bring like 20 employees from Goldman Sachs into a school in Brooklyn or bring the kids into their office. And we work for a bunch of different companies said, hey, you're the CEO of Nike today and you've got to create a new Nike shoe for the company. So they're divided into teams and they're coached by the Goldman employees to pick a target market and design a new shoe and create a marketing campaign, create a commercial. And you got middle and high school kids depending on the, the level of kind of advancement for them. And then the winning team, they pitch their ideas to judges at the end and the winning team gets real money like the real world. 
I swear by this still do. I'm obviously biased, but it is 50 times, maybe a thousand times better than the way we're volunteering in the United States of America right now. It is exciting for the company. It's simple, exciting. It's impactful. Like you get really into it. It's a little competitive. It's fun. And the kids, it blows their mind. It really does. I've had kids write their college essays on this, pursue careers that they never knew existed before. I've got teachers crying to me, like frequently writing like wonderful, like moving letters about how we really are reaching the kids that you don't always get to reach. So long way of saying I started this organization suit up while I'm full time at UBS. And we started getting more and more companies to pay us to run their volunteer days. And instead of quitting, I was fortunate I had a boss like, hey, before you jump, because I still had some loans, he's like, why don't you check out our client philanthropy services team, which wasn't really a team. It was like one guy who was great. We help the wealthiest people in the world, we're, we're UBS clients, give money to charity because giving money to charity is actually at a very high level, very difficult to give away $100 million plus. It's a champagne problem for sure, Michael, but <laughs> it's uh, it's complicated. Yeah. You want to have real impact and not blow it and that sort of thing. So long way of saying, but I ended up there and that's in that world is where I met Andrew. Before we get to that moment when you and Andrew met, I want to take a quick detour with you about how I think volunteering is sort of fundamentally broken in our country. Because Please, Michael, I'll go all day. We make the whole <laughs> pot on this if you want. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of what you were doing with Suit Up because the best volunteering experience I ever had was when I worked here in Los Angeles for an organization called the Young Storytellers Foundation. And it was sort of spiritually similar to Suit Up. It basically paired mentors from the film industry with either fifth graders, middle schoolers, or high schoolers. I always was working with fifth graders. I just liked working with kids that age before kind of puberty kicked in and made them <laughs> made them uh, slightly more annoying. <laughs> but when I was working with like 11 and 12-year-olds at what you would call these at-risk schools in Los Angeles that had, I guess you could say, under-prioritized arts programs, what we did was it would take 10 of us, 10 of us folks from the film industry, and pair us with 10 kids at a given school. And over the course of an eight to nine week program only one hour a week during their lunch break, basically, we would pair up with these 10 kids and guide them through writing their first five-page screenplay. Oh, wow. That's cool. And each hour sequentially was dedicated to a different part of the task, right? So what is three-act structure? How do you make a character that comes to life? Why are details important in telling your story? But beyond that, beyond just teaching them the how to tell a story... Everything else was completely under their control creatively. So they could tell any kind of story they wanted. There were no restrictions aside from, hey, no violence and no cursing. But beyond that, they could tell a story of any kind they wanted, which led to some really fantastical ones. The one that still sticks in my mind is it was called Super Secret Penguins versus the Atomic Bomb. This was back in, I think, 2012 or 2013. And the story was about Secret Service penguins who worked for President Obama who had to save the world from an atomic bomb being set off by evil Mr. Peanuthead. Wow. You remember the specifics, man. <laughs> <laughs> and these stories were fantastical and amazing and brilliant. And what stuck with me so much, Zach, and I imagine you have a similar story or similar stories from Suit Up, was, <laughs> I'm trying not to get emotional even talking about it. I haven't volunteered with them in years, but it's, uh, it's like right there at the surface. I realized very quickly that this was the first time that many of these kids had ever written something that wasn't a school assignment, that was fully 100% fundamentally their vision on their terms. And they had never even considered writing or storytelling as something that they could do. And for me, as someone who came from a creative background, who always saw writing as something that was natural and could come easily and was just a natural path that I could pursue as an adult, seeing these kids over the course of eight weeks, just eight hours go from sometimes reluctant to even be a part of it to by the eighth week when we would go around asking the kids over pizza, what was one thing that you would like to change about young storytellers? 
And we got so many kids giving the exact same answer. The one thing they would change is that they wished <laughs> it would never end. Aww. And, <laughs> excuse me, sorry. No, yeah, that hits home, man. Did not expect to uh, to get emotional, but I haven't spoken about it in several years. But anyway, Zach, that's all to say that although SuitUp is in many ways a different enterprise, what I think the connective tissue there is, is that when you expose children at whatever age to the opportunity to think about their own future in a fundamentally different way, I think that's one of the best ways that you can volunteer and one of the best ways that companies synergize with volunteering. I think in so many ways, it's more effective, not to say the soup kitchens aren't effective, but I think that thinking about volunteering as either soup kitchens or you know, some kind of for-profit businesses if they're two distinct lanes rather than something that can be merged to give kids better opportunities. Right. Anyway, long-winded way of saying that I think what you were doing with SuitUp was great. And I imagine you had similar experiences. I mean, you're preaching a choir. I completely agree. So you got to think, like you picture me, I'm 25, 26, thinking I'm on top of the world, but I'm talking to the wealthiest people in the freaking world, right? And it was frustrating to me because as much money they had, they were still struggling to solve some of these problems. And so often in philanthropy, we treat the symptom and we don't treat the cause. And so like your, your point on soup kitchens is so wonderful. And this is like the, the caveat that everyone has to make. Nothing wrong with you making it because we all do. It's like, oh, there's nothing wrong with soup kitchens. I'd push back. Like there's nothing wrong with helping people. Great. But you're just treating the symptom, right? Like people are hungry and you have to feed them. Now, how do we quote, teach them to fish, right? Like how do we eliminate the need for soup kitchens, right? That's the stuff I'm interested in that like social engineering stuff. And when it came to education, it drove me bonkers. Because on one hand, like there's a lot of studies on active learning versus passive learning. And it's very simple and great teachers do it all the time. But it's the difference between teaching a kid math and teaching a kid to build a bridge or asking the kid to build a bridge, right? And to your point, like teaching a kid, like, you know, use adjectives, use creative writing or like, hey, write a movie script, right? Yes. It's totally different. Flips it on its head. And that's what suit up does. Like they learn like, oh, this is why I need math. I need to know how much my shoe costs, right? And then how much I'm going to pay for it, right? Right. This is why I need to use descriptive adjectives because I have to describe my shoe to somebody. You take the abstract and you make it tangible in a way that connects what they're doing in school to something they can become later as an adult. Absolutely. Education would drive me nuts because one, there's that piece. And two, education is not rocket science. We're not curing cancer. We're not trying to colonize Mars. We're not trying to live forever. We're not trying, like, there's so many more difficult challenges we have. Education, we know the answer. It's time and money, period, the end, because the rich people figure it out. <laughs> like, they put money into it and hire great people to spend a lot of time teaching their kids. And there's nuance to it, of course. That's obviously oversimplifying, but we've had. Plenty of people have been well-educated in this country, yet we still have this massive problem with people not getting well-educated and not getting the resources. So when I was 23, 24, thinking of suit up, I was like looking at this, like, well, all right, education needs time and money. Who has time and money? I was like, companies. Companies have time and money. And then I'd ask, like, well, what would they pay for? And right now, every charity and nonprofit in the world is begging companies for their philanthropy dollars. That's what they do. They beg the companies, they beg the employees is what they do. And it sucks. That's our nonprofit game. And it's inherently inefficient because nonprofits don't make money, right? So <laughs> they need money and they don't make it. So they have to go ask for it from other people that are not related to their business or their core functions. On my end, I was like, well, how can I get companies to pay me for put more time and money into education? I was trying to find an incentive, basically align the incentives of schools and companies in a, let's call it socially positive way. And my takeaway was volunteering because we're so bad at it. A lot of times you have a lot of white collar workers who work with their brain and numbers all day long and never work with their hands. They go out there and they build a poorly constructed house. The house isn't useful for the people that need it and the people who built it feel like they wasted their time. There's obviously exceptions to that, but that's kind of, it's usually complicated. It's hard to organize and it's not nicely fun. So 
I'll say this, Suit Up's grown like weed. Like Suit Up is, we're a million dollar organization now. We've got 11 full-time people. Our executive director, Lauren Riley, is a badass. You know, you don't see a lot of like that kind of growth in nonprofits. It's been cool to see kind of hockey stick growth from something we started with like 200 bucks. And hell, a lot of parallels there between the $75,000 you started the Andrew Yang campaign with. It's honestly no surprise that you and Andrew ended up meeting up. And I'd like to get to that night in April of 2017. Yeah. When you heard a a heavily modified version of his Venture for America pitch. (laughs) It makes total sense to me because the synergy between what Andrew was attempting to do with Venture for America, what you were doing with Suit Up, and I think the synergies between around the campaign of making capitalism work for the average American, those all seem of a piece to me. So it's no surprise that that was something that was driving you even as a 23, 24, 25 year old. To take it to the book, you uh, you wrote, quote, my journey as a completely inexperienced campaign manager for an unknown candidate began, perhaps unsurprisingly, with a completely ridiculous idea, a ridiculous idea that nevertheless cut through every other thing that was laying claim to my attention and got me to deeply fundamentally care about it. This idea got me to care so much, in fact, that I quit my job to embark on an adventure that I'm not sure anyone could have been truly prepared for and that I definitely wasn't, end quote. So that night in April of 2017, you'd heard Andrew pitching Venture for America many, many times in these rooms full of potential donors. What was it about that modified pitch that threw that curveball that changed the trajectory of your entire life? It's kind of what we were talking about earlier, like the setup of this. So like a little bit, just like high level perspective. I grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut, Connecticut sounds rich. It's not. I grew up really in, in a subset of West Harvard called Elmwood, and it was pretty working class. I went to public school, went to college and you know, on loans, right? So like, you know, I wasn't cool in school, but I was good at school, right? I was like the exception, right? I went to, went to elite school out of like the public school track. I knew my friends were not, that wasn't the, the path they were, like I had to fight to do a different path than a lot of my friends and peers. So I had a, since then, probably, you know, even graduating high school, 2006, 2008 or so, that the regular economy wasn't particularly working. I mean, heck, it wasn't really working for me. I had thousands of dollars in loan payments a month, right? So it stuck, <laughs> sucked there too. <laughs> and then I was meeting with the people who had all the money and they, one, seemed miserable. <laughs> they didn't seem that happy. And Andrew wrote about that in his book, actually, um, more on normal people. But two, they weren't really able to solve a lot of the problems too. Either they didn't see it, they didn't understand it. And I was like, nothing, it was like, where am I at? Like nothing's working. And I'd worked with Andrew because he was a really prominent social entrepreneur. He wasn't popular from a national standpoint, but if you were in the philanthropy game, you knew Andrew Yang. Venture for America was close to unicorn status. If there's such thing as a unicorn nonprofit, like it grew really fast. They raised millions of dollars very quickly. People loved it. They had a lot of young people and energy around it. Mayor Bloomberg spoke at their gala like a couple of years in, like they were legit. And so I had brought him to speak to clients. Clients loved him. I'd heard that Venture for America spiel hundreds of times, probably, you know, dozens of times. I was networking. I just just paid off debt or was about to pay off debt. I was looking, whether I say to UBS or found something else, I wasn't sure. And Andrew came in to this dinner kind of unannounced. It was like a 15-person Jeffersonian roundtable discussion. It's like a fancy way of saying, I don't know, rich people sitting around in a circle and talking about a topic. Jeffersonian sounds much more prestigious. Yeah. Way cooler, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, this is a, a healthy... There's a book called The Generosity Network that talks about this is an effective way to get people passionate about something and eventually open their wallets to donate. So I'm at this thing on the future work. Andrew shows up unannounced. And instead of the Venture for America spiel, he talks about automation. And this is what I love about Andrew. He's like, look, your listeners, you guys, maybe you're political, maybe you're the left, you're the right. I consider myself a moderate. It's tough for me to even pick a team. But 
Andrew's message was correct, at least his diagnosis of the problem. And you could disagree on the solution, but you have to think as big as he was. But the diagnosis of the problem was that we're automating away the most common jobs in the United States. And he just went off and he's like, here are the top five job categories in the United States, like clerical work, admin work, which is mainly call centers, retail, food services and food prep, like hospitality, truck driving, and manufacturing. Half of American jobs are made up in those five categories. We destroyed manufacturing, and he'd argue, you know, that's what led to Trump, and he'll get there. But the other four, what do they have in common? They're all ripe for automation. Mm. We've got trucks that can drive themselves. We've got restaurants that serve themselves, or they're using apps and less servers um, and line cooks. You've got the American malls are disintegrating. Retail is getting sucked up by Amazon and Walmart, and AI and the call center is getting, whether we like it or not, better and better and better. And he's like, what happens when we automate away all these jobs? Oh, they'll go find new jobs. It's just not the case. And government programs weren't working. And the best example were the states that had heavy manufacturing jobs and what happened to them. And those are Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. And all four of them went blue to red from 2012 to 2016. And they went from blue to red from Obama to Trump. And that's what got Donald Trump elected. Those are the four states he needed to win. So he's like, we're going through the fourth industrial revolution. We need massive nation scale solutions to solve for this. And so I'm running for president on a platform of universal basic income. That's what he said. And I was like, president of America? (laughs) For real, man? (laughs) I mean, everybody thought I was crazy, self-included a bit, but it hit home for me because I knew like there's no cavalry. I wrote this in my book, like the cavalry is not coming to save us. And I was right. I still am right about that. No one's coming to fix this. Andrew was as close as you had. So I knew he's like running for president would wake the country up if he wins. Great. If he loses and we get some sort of notoriety or relevance will have done the country a massive favor. Before we move to 2018 and the friends of Andrew Yang's tiny little campaign headquarters in Manhattan, I'm going to reference a book that I reference probably too much on this podcast, but it's a book called Making Movies by Sidney Lumet. It was one of the first books that was actually gifted to me when I first started in film school all the way back in 2007. I'm Googling it. (laughs) It's so good. I highly recommend it. Cool. If you're a fan of Dog Day Afternoon, if you're a fan of 12 Angry Men, if you're a fan of any of Sidney Lumet's movies, it's a great behind the scenes look. But there was a passage in it that really connected with me as a young filmmaker that I think is true for things like political campaigns as well. He went on to say that ignorance of what is and isn't possible is a necessity for becoming a filmmaker. Because if you were aware of all the things that you didn't know and all of the things that you couldn't yet do, you would never take the risk into such a tumultuous lifestyle like being an artist, right? Barrier to entry is so insanely high to be successful in an artistic field like that, that if you were aware of all the things in front of you, you would never do it. So ignorance is a fundamental aspect of actually taking that leap. Knowing what you know now, the slings and arrows you took during the campaign, the things you had to learn from scratch, would the Zach of 2022 do it again? Or was there a fundamental part of running that campaign with Andrew back in 2018, 2019, 2020 that required you to basically be ignorant of all the things that were going to be in front of you at the time? I love that quote. I love what you're saying is you're, it's so true. Um, there's a certain level of ignorance, naivete, if you will, and arrogance to like do these crazy things. Here's what I'll say. Like knowing what I know now, would you do it again? Hell yeah. It was an awesome run, right? <laughs> if you th- if you just say it that way, right? I talk about this with Andrew during the race and we still joke about it. It's like if we knew the amount of obstacles we'd had to face at the time, if someone told us like all the negative, would we have done it? The answer is probably no. Like we actually didn't know what we were getting into. 
And there's a whole bunch of factors in that, like, and we'll, we'll probably break down more. But one of the biggest ones is I thought that the Democratic Party would welcome Andrew Yang with open arms, if that makes sense, or even the far left or so, in the sense that you've got a diverse candidate with a lot of strong energy, new to politics, good energy. I knew I could see like outside a little skeptical, but also championing probably the most progressive, I'd argue the most progressive policy that's out there is universal-based income. And now we define progressive a lot of different ways, but like you can't get more left than giving people free money, right? <laughs> and it sounds as lefty as you possibly can. Now I understand there's, and I helped write it with the team, like the the moderate libertarian conservative arguments for it too. And there's a lot of logic to it, but we thought this would be like, heck yeah, we're the left. We love this. It was the exact opposite. Like the Rachel Maddow's of the world were like, screw you, as opposed to no thank you, or we thought would be like a nice little hug. So we learned a lot that way. Plus all the other, the challenges that we knew were a little more complicated than, than you know, we knew it was a problem, but we thought it was a, let's call it like a moderate level difficulty problem and ended up being expert level, that kind of thing. That was the biggest one, I think. Let's go to August of 2018. Walk us through one of your first public campaign events. You paint quite an interesting picture. It doesn't seem like the most auspicious start to a presidential campaign. So walk us through what that night was like when there, I think, was just five of you, right? And none of you had a political background. As I said earlier, the average age of your campaign team was 26, with the elder millennial among you being 34, I think. (laughs) Yeah. One of the biggest challenges we had was like, besides raising money, there's a real question of like, what do you do when you're running for president? What do you mean, Zach? What are you running? You're talking, you want to talk to people, right? Of course. But, you know, you really think about it. You're not running for local office or even Senate or Congress. So you can't talk to everybody, right? You can't do grassroots style. You, you really can't even do that in Iowa where, and kind of, like they, they, they pride themselves on meeting the candidates pretty often. But even that's kind of hard, right? And we're talking about 2018. You know, this is before the midterms you know, of 2018. And we had a staff of five. We needed to raise money and that sort of thing, right? So like, what, do you, what do you actually do? And we essentially, we tried the traditional political game. Folks have a, their own ways of kind of defining this, but I would say the traditional political game includes mainstream media. So getting on your MSNBC, CNN, Foxes, and then also like your New York Times posts, the journal a bit. I think they've got a little better over time, a little more conservative too. But like those bigger outlets trying to get coverage from them. Surrogates and endorsements trying to get people who are elected officials or political power players to endorse you or come work for you, that sort of thing. High dollar donors trying to get democratic bundlers are called bundlers. You only can give, uh, forgive me if you already know this, but you can only give a max of at the time was $2,700 per person to a campaign. So it's not just a rich person game. It's a rich person's quantity game, right? You have to get lots of rich people to write you, you know, essentially a $3,000 check. It was $5,400 per couple and it goes up a hundred bucks a year or whatever it is. So you go in, you're trying to do these like cocktail parties, fundraisers where people pay 500 to a couple thousand dollars per ticket to come listen to your candidate talk. And then there's these large campaign apparatuses and political consultants where you hire the experts and the pollsters and all these folks that are part of the DC establishment. And if you hire a big one, then they have relationships with press and others to help you level up. That's the traditional game. And we tried all of that, try to get on mainstream media. We tried to get big endorsements and all of them like complete flop. We sucked at all of them. And the reality was, you know, why do we suck at it? Like one, Andrew is new, right? He's an outsider. Andrew does do well in those spaces, right? Like Venture for America and Manhattan Prep. Like these are orgs where he had to raise from traditional people, right? But he didn't fit the mold. 
Andrew's greatest strength, at least for folks like me, and I think a lot of folks who would identify themselves as Yang Gang, right, was also the thing that was working against him when getting legitimacy from mainstream and quote unquote traditional sources of media and donations, et cetera, was that, especially at the beginning, he was so unpolished. It's often used as like a slur against what is basically a normal human being. <laughs> but he was like unpolished, kind of wonky, spoke really in depth about issues that I think a lot of young people just naturally are savvy about, which is like anything related to technology. But because he didn't speak in sound bites initially and, and didn't really have the perfect stump speech, which you guys practiced and kind of perfected over time while still allowing him to be authentically Andrew, I think those two things were kind of in opposition to one another, right? Like the very things that made Andrew likable to the average person outside of those traditional gatekeeper areas were the things that made him, quote unquote, illegitimate to those gatekeepers, right? Absolutely. But I would say even in the beginning, it was like, let's call it pre-Yang Gang, right? Like we hadn't even tried any out-of-the-box marketing thing. We're just trying to be like message only, right? <laughs> right. Essentially, robots are coming, universal basic income, which it wasn't a perfect stunt, but it was important. And Andrew's charismatic enough, at least, you know, in small audiences. There were, I mean, look, a bunch of things. Like one, he was an outsider. Two, there were 29 other candidates. So no one thought he had a chance in hell, right? Um, he's like, you're not going to win worth my time. A lot of big donors and big players were in the bag for another candidate. He wasn't, Andrew didn't really talk like a traditional Democrat. It's not a good thing to the traditional power players. Basically, our takeaway was we were flopping over and over in 2018 trying to play this traditional game. And some of it was Andrew, but a lot of it was just kind of the concept of Andrew, right? And the takeaway was we didn't make Andrew Yang appealing to that old school audience. We needed to find the audience that naturally found Andrew Yang appealing and then bring them to this audience. Because this is the audience, this is the problem with the traditional, like, let's call it the political industrial complex, if you will. Like, they're behind, right? They thought Bernie was a nothing burger and he almost beat Hillary, maybe should have, right? May 16. Same reason they couldn't see Trump. This is the one that thought Hillary was going to roll. Yeah, that she was going to roll on Donald Trump and didn't see him coming. But that's the ones that didn't understand Black Lives Matter as a movement. And even you go back to Occupy Wall Street and they think that Quibi was going to be a good idea. It's like this kind of like groupthink nonsense that the average person's like, that's awful. But this world's like, this is going to be great. It's like Kirsten Gillibrand's going to do really well. Like, no, she's not. There's no connection there. There's no authenticity. Without you, no one cares, right? You being the, the powers that be. And it's why you've seen your Joe Rogans do so well in the non-traditional media and such. But anyway, we were trying to play the traditional game and we sucked. And you got to think like, here we are, like trying to run for office, not know what you're doing. Like, let's go, Andrew. And no one's coming in events. And you're like, we got to flip the script here. You know, what's interesting is to make a perhaps tenuous comparison here. I've always been a fan of technology companies like Apple, et cetera. And you go into detail about the importance of brand identity, which we'll, we'll get to in just one second. But there was this article that I read years ago that basically said that Apple was the only company that could have ever made the iPhone back in 2007. And the reason that it could have been the only company to make the iPhone was because it failed at making the Mac mainstream. So because the Mac failed to become mainstream and only had 2 or 3% market share in the late 90s, early 2000s, when Steve Jobs came back to the company, the PC you know, was ascendant. Microsoft was ascendant. But because Microsoft was ascendant, when Microsoft wanted to make a smartphone, they wanted to go from strength to strength. So the smartphones that Microsoft was putting out in the mid-2000s were miniaturized versions of the Windows 95 desktop with a stylus. So you would basically operate a tiny little desktop in the palm of your hand, which is completely unintuitive and, and garbage, right? They were trying to miniaturize their greatest success into something that was fundamentally opposed to that kind of interface. 
because Apple had so fundamentally failed at making the Mac mainstream, they had a blank slate in terms of how they had to think about the smartphone. It could start exactly from scratch. And it seems like that was the freedom that you guys had with the Yang campaign, right? Because you weren't operating under these assumptions about how a political campaign had to be run, you were able to see it from, again, that naivete point of view of, okay, we're completely failing at all these other traditional routes because we just don't know how to play that game. We haven't been in the industry long enough. We don't have the connections. We don't have the savvy, et cetera, et cetera. Let's try another way. Let's make an iPhone. I haven't thought of it that way, but yes, absolutely. We're looking at it. Well, all right, if you were going to run for office, I mean, basically it was this problem. It's like, you have no money, you have no name, you have no nothing, you have no experience, no real resources or assets, but you have to win the presidency of the United States or you have to at least get to serious contention. How would you do it? And most people will say, well, you can't do that. And I'm like, fine, but how can I? Right. That was the challenge. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Fine. But how can I? Yeah. And one of the things I love about Andrew, like we were very, very clear eyed on the mission and the, what we needed to do and how we saw this space. And the, <laughs> I'll tell you this. Someone asked me this the other day, I've been doing some book events around the city and such. And uh, we did one and one of our early supporters said, hey, you know, you guys seemed at a certain point, you could see like the campaign kind of got its, its swag, its moxie. And she asked, when did you feel like you somewhat knew what you were doing? You know what I'm saying? Because most of the time we're like throwing stuff at a wall, like no idea. But when did you get more confident? And no offense if there are Elizabeth Warren fans on here. I'm not going to say anything bad, particularly about her as a person or things like that. But I would say this, this was the moment. So Liz Warren in 2018, was right before the midterms. I think it was October of it, 2018. She dropped this video explaining her Native American heritage, which was awful in so many ways. I mean, you could argue it was smart to get it out of the way for her selfishly so that she could say, well, I addressed it with a video and maybe that was the strategy, but I don't think it was. I think it was, this is us planting the seeds for our presidential run because we've proven to everyone that we really are Native American. It was just so bad and it was so out of touch and so painful. And I remember sitting there with the team and we played the video on the TV in our office and I stopped. I said, guys, I want you to remember this moment right now because apparently the smartest minds in the Democratic Party and creatives and leaders think this is a good idea. We should never doubt ourselves for a second. We have to be confident in what we know is right and what makes sense. So that was my, okay, we got this. Like If that's what the best of the best are doing, we have to be better. Look, I like Roger Lau a lot. I thought they actually ran a really good campaign and I thought they were branded really well. And I thought she was always on message and she's super talented. And regardless of what you think about her policies, she's a very talented politician. But it was just that moment. I was like, these guys aren't all rocket scientists and it's not rocket science. So it's a marketing game. And I think we can do better than that. But yeah, we had to play a different game. Clearly. And it paid off. I don't want to go down a Elizabeth Warren rabbit hole, but I do think that there is a connection between what you said and why Andrew's campaign connected with people and not to say that Elizabeth Warren's didn't, but I would think that if the Elizabeth Warren who wrote The Two Income Trap, if that person, being authentically herself, had run then, I think that things would have gone considerably differently. And my point being is that I think the traditional political machine, so to speak, I think because the old school minds or traditional way of thinking still operates to some extent, and even more so four or five years ago, that there is a quote unquote certain way to run a campaign and the candidate has to be a certain kind of way and they can't be too you know, authentic and there's a certain way to be authentic and hot sauce in my bag and all these other things. It actually, by trying to put on a faux type of authenticity that is workshopped and put through forums, et cetera, et cetera, I think it ends up sapping away the very thing that made that candidate popular in the first place. 
when I first came across Elizabeth Warren, I think in 2009, I found her super compelling. Regardless of how you feel about a given political candidate, and I think this is universal what we're saying here, regardless of how you feel about Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, Andrew Yang, et cetera, there is something that happens to people who enter politics. And I think Andrew has largely avoided this, but there's something that happens to people who reach a certain level of success in politics in which the very thing that has made them likable and successful in the first place starts to become modified by the traditional political apparatus, which I think ultimately does them a detriment. There's a couple forces here. One of them is that whether some politicians have learned it or not, and a lot of the Democrats did not learn this, is that you're in the attention economy, right? Where our attention is our most valuable resource and asset. And so all day long, there's a constant war for your eyeballs and what you care about. And the hardest part of that is that understanding that you're running for president, you're not just competing against Liz Warren and Bernie and Biden, whoever's you know the, the other usual suspects. You're also competing against Kim Kardashian and the new boys episode that dropped on Amazon and Taylor Swift's next concert and whatever the heck so-and-so tweeted and whatever podcast you're listening to and your friend's tech, you name it, right? You're competing against all that. You have to cut through that. So that's why a lot of these traditional power players like the cable news hit or the endorsement, like, yeah, they maybe can make you a little better than the other politician, but you can't compete against whatever you know episode of This Is Us that's on CBS or whatever. No one cares. And we knew that fundamentally. Well, let's talk about the attention economy for a second. You do a really fantastic job laying out what the attention economy is in the book and why I think a lot of politicians back then and even today stumble in attracting attention to their campaign because they don't realize that they're not just competing against other politicians like you just mentioned in 2022 or even back in 2018-2019 they're competing against every single other thing that is grabbing your attention and in the age of smartphones yeah it's a lot last night Zach I was taking a break from prepping for this very talk I was watching TV and I didn't even realize until about 5 minutes in that I was not even really watching TV I was looking at my smartphone and not watching TV at all. So even when I think that my attention is on one thing, it's being pulled somewhere else. So walk us through, and because this is such a fundamental part of why the campaign succeeded as much as it did. Walk us through how you were able to, I guess, game that attention economy while still keeping Andrew authentically Andrew. Because I think to your point earlier, too many politicians, when they try and get attention in this economy, end up sacrificing the very thing that made their candidate likable. How did you walk that fine line? And that was like kind of the point I was making before. I was like, if done wrong, it's so inauthentic and cringy, right? <laughs> it's awful. Yes. Yeah. And especially young people, you can see right through it, right? Millennials, it's their biggest. I think there's a stat on this. I'm, I'll probably butcher it. But like the biggest thing that millennials value in brands is the authenticity, right? They feel like they can trust it. It feels like it's real. How do we know this? Like, I kind of knew how Trump's playbook worked, where he was getting the media to chase squirrels and, and navigating the tension economy really well. But to me, we had a crash course in 2018. I call it a crash course in realizing that no one gives a shit. And we did events no one came to. We posted things on social media no one liked. We said things no one thought twice of. And we even had trouble engaging our own supporters, like people that donated to Andrew and liked him. They weren't going to volunteer or vote or whatever we needed, right? So we had this book and with this really powerful message, like I read this book the first time I, I jumped out of my bed. I'm like, holy cow, the world needs to hear this. And no one read it. No one cared. Right. So how do you get people to care? And that's the thing. You got to get people to really, really care. And I talk about this book. It's like you could ask 10 Democrats, you care about climate change and they're all going to say yes, or at least nine out of 10 most of the time. Right. They're all going to say, yeah, climate change is important. But what percent of them are going to volunteer or wear a climate change t-shirt or donate to a cause or XYZ, like very, very little. They don't really care about it. 
they say they care, but the reality is they don't. Push comes shove, they're still going to like buy the SUV and, you know, leave the water on too long. And it's because we don't care. And that's not a bad thing. I think people correlate that with being an asshole. Not usually. It's just you care about the things that are important to you, that you identify with, right? And that's your kids and your passions and your hopes and your dreams. We basically had to flip the traditional brand identity in marketing. So a lot of people know what your brand stands for. Maybe heard the term brand identity. And that's, you know, your basic would be Coca-Cola's got the red and white cursive lettering or the polar bear. And that's what Coke is, right? And we had that. We had the Yang logo that Business Insider called an abomination. (laughs) It was like not very (laughs) clever, interesting. But we had UBI. We had like, if you looked at our website, you kind of got the brand identity, but there was no connection to it. And we needed people to identify with Andrew. And Trump was the best at this, uh, one of the best, where he could cut through the attention economy so well, and his supporters felt a connection to Donald Trump. And I want to think about how amazing that is, because there's no one in the world like him. He's not a real human being. He's ridiculous. <laughs> his hair, his tan, is I mean, just his physical appearance in general. But people felt that he represented them. Yeah. And that's because he was really, quote, honest in quotes, right? But when people were talking about who they were supporting in that 2016 Republican primary, it was, I'm voting for John Kasich, or I'm on team Chris Christie or whatever. But when you said Trump, what did you say? You're like, I'm MAGA. I'm MAGA. And you felt that visceral, like, oh, this is a part of me. Like, oh, this is Trump territory. You know what I'm saying? Where it's like part of us. And he was able to do that because One, he masters the attention economy, but two, his message was the country's going to shit and everybody knows it. No one wanted to say it, but he did. And people identify with that. And there's a lot of value because Andrew had that too. Andrew was like, this is a massive problem. And the people that were like, yeah, I don't like politics, but that guy's right. There's a strong identity that happens there, if that makes sense. Yes. And when you, when you announced, it was, I think, uh, late September 2018, when you announced, we're calling it Yang Gang. <laughs> that was what you were pitching that Andrew Yang supporters would now call themselves. Yeah. And pretty much everyone else on the staff was not exactly in love with the name. But your insight into it and why I think it worked so well and how you tied it to why MAGA was working so well with Donald Trump is I think that there is a fundamentally different emotional connection between saying, I am voting for this person versus I am of this group. Yes. And when you say I'm MAGA or I'm Yang Gang, even if ultimately it's saying the same thing, hey, I'm supporting this political candidate, it gives you a sense of identity and belonging that saying I'm voting for a person doesn't give you because there's more distance there when you say that. Yes. And great businesses do this well. And I think a couple of examples I had in the book, like my mom calls herself a Target girl. She identifies with Target. She's like, I'm stylish, I'm chic, but I'm not going to spend out the ass to buy my purse or flip-flops or whatever it is, right? And she'll drive out of her way to go to Target. Mac was great at this. I'm a PC, I'm a Mac. You know, I was in college when that was happening. and be like, yeah, I'm a Mac guy. I freaking love this thing, right? Like seeing yourself with a Mac, I like would refuse to get a PC. I thought it was like the coolest thing in the world and I couldn't afford it, right? So <laughs> just packed that onto the debt. We wanted that visceral connection. And Yang Gang, like, you know, for a serious presidential contender, like a little strange, but we had to shoot for the moon, right? We needed people to rally around this guy. You know, we wanted to do what Trump did on the right, obviously more positive and wholesome and human where he was able to create such a populist, popular movement that the establishment eventually lined up behind him. They're like, you know, this guy can win. We did the first part where we built a populist, popular movement. It was really exciting, raised a ton of money and make rallies and all those things. But we never got the establishment to line up behind him. Now, a number of reasons Democrats, Republicans are different. Trump was way more popular. We were used to Trump. You know what I'm saying? Like he was in your primetime home on NBC 
frankly considered a Democrat for years. Oh, he had massive brand awareness before he even ran. Yeah. Yeah. 99% name recognition. Like no politician has that. I think Clinton was the closest and didn't have that. I think he, she was like 98, whatever. Yeah. To pivot to an adjacent, but I think slightly related point, there was this tagline that Andrew would use over and over again to kind of contrast himself with Trump. Mm. I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something along the lines of what's the exact opposite of Donald Trump? It's an Asian guy who loves math, I think is something to that effect. I might be butchering the quote. Pretty good. The opposite of Donald Trump is an Asian man who likes math. Now, I would say if you're a white guy giving that as a political speech, it's way less effective than the actual Asian guy talking about himself. I tried it in one speech I gave, like campaign managers get invited to events. And I dropped that line one time and it did not go well. (laughs) A lot of it was one calling that out, but two, there was a subtle racist undertone to a lot of the way the media treated him or, you know, voters would treat him and the model minority myth. And, um, a lot of like, oh, he must be good at math and numbers. And so for him to just, and we loved it. And this was like one of the things within the team, just like hit that shit right on the nose. Like, oh, you want to think I'm good at math? Yeah. That's my slogan. Like, fuck yeah. I love math. That just diffuses that bomb so quickly, as opposed to like, this is absurd, but I feel like if I was Liz Warren's team, I would have, I'd get in trouble for this, but I would be like, hell yeah, I'm Native American. Like I checked the box and it got me, you know, whatever, like lean into it. And then no one can make fun of you anymore. Now you have to find that subtle way to do it. But the fact that it was like, oh, well, you know, uh, when we all knew she checked the box because it would help her get jobs that, you know, we all know it. Like every, if, you know, if I was part Indian, I'd probably check the box too, right? Because it would help me in this economy that's hyper competitive. And she's trying to fix that. That would be a cool message, right? Anyway, I'm off my soapbox. One of the things too, and I think this is important, and I think it speaks to the disconnect between quote unquote elite media and the average person. And this is something that I was really awakened to because of Andrew's campaign. So, in my line of work, I often, through kind of a roundabout set of circumstances, I often work with a lot of dudes who oftentimes will just have a high school level education. They'll come from places like South Central, Placentia, you know, the San Gabriel Valley, et cetera. They're either Black, Latino, first generation, children of Asian immigrants, et cetera. And so oftentimes I've been the only white dude in the room, right? And I say that because (laughs) the way that these quote unquote, uh, how the media, I guess would put it, men of color talk about each other and joke with each other as a way to diffuse any potential ethnic tension that might be there is that they lean into the quote unquote differences by making fun of them, by making fun of each other, right? In a way that's lighthearted, in a way that's self-aware, in a way that isn't hostile, in a way that reminded me growing up in a predominantly between 90 to 95% white suburb in the 90s, that my friends, I'm half Armenian, half Irish. My friends were of Italian, German, Irish, Jewish, etc. descent. The way that we would just totally jokingly as the best of friends, make fun of each other's backgrounds as a way to say we are all actually very much alike. It was by pointing out our quote unquote differences that we found a commonality. And so it was really interesting for me to see that line drawn between my experience as a kid growing up in the 1990s in a predominantly white suburb, my experience as as an adult as the only white dude in the room watching dudes of Latino, Asian, Black descent, et cetera, do the exact same thing. I promise I have a point here. One of my uh, exes, I was in a long-term relationship with her. I was born in America, but grew up in Hong Kong and Beijing. And so I would oftentimes go to these weddings with friends of hers. And again, I'd be like one of the few white dudes in attendance. 
And there were just jokes, you know, like, hey, uh, we know that the person who would be um, proceeding over the ceremony would say like, hey, just in case anyone needs to file a lawsuit or needs like a heart exam, you would, <laughs> <laughs> you will, uh, you'll be able to get one here, you know? Like, oh, I've been to so many all Asian events and the jokes are hilarious. A joke that acknowledges the stereotype, right? Yeah. But in a way that diffuses any tension while acknowledging it, right? And so when Andrew would joke about those things, right, especially, especially, and this is key, and I think this really fundamentally matters in increasingly diversifying society. When he would make a joke like that in front of a middle America, predominantly white crowd, I actually think that he wasn't catering or kowtowing to racism or whatever, or leaning into whiteness, as a lot of times the media would say. He was doing something that I would see the working class dudes that I work with do. It's something that is oftentimes fundamentally American. It's acknowledging a difference to diffuse tension and achieve commonality. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, absolutely. I, I think the left's gone too far on this. And it's there's a difference between actual racism and slightly racist jokes amongst good friends or good colleagues. Or, you know, I don't even call them slightly racist jokes, maybe slightly racial jokes, right? Yeah, it's like a meta, it's like a meta racial joke. Yeah. Look, I played football in high school in a 40% black and brown maybe more. And the football team was, was skewing higher than that. And I used to bring Krispy Kreme donuts. So like for every game, <laughs> freshman year, yeah, they called me the donut man. I was like, look at your white ass. And I didn't find that. <laughs> Obviously, it's different going, of course, towards a white guy. But still, it was that was the culture, right? That's so different than actual racism. We need to identify actual racism and address that and also poke these on his head. And I'll, I'll never forget this. Is, and uh, Andrew considers himself an Asian American activist. And even though let's call the woke left does does not particularly love him. And I would say, or me, I guess, but he would say after he made the Asian doctor joke, he said, I'm Asian. I know a lot of doctors. He said that on a debate stage. <laughs> yeah. He got a lot of pushback from a lot of Asian American activists on the far left. And so he sat down with them. He listened and some of them are really aggressive. Um, and they were saying, you are perpetuating the model minority myth and you're setting our race back. And he says, Look, respect that you have your opinion, but he said, and I'll never forget, he said this, and he was a little frustrated in his tone. He's like, you can say that I'm perpetuating model minority myth by making math jokes, but you know, it's not the model minority for Asian Americans running for president. I remember that. Raising millions of dollars, standing next to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris on that debate stage. Like what you're saying is fundamentally ridiculous. And yes, I understand. I don't represent all Asians, nor should I. But if I can make some levity out of that point, I think that advances what we're trying to do. And hopefully some kids around the country see me and say, I can do that. Kids that look like me is what Andrew said. So, yeah, you know, it's one of the challenges of the left, uh, I think. I mean, the right has their, oh, they got plenty of problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but the left, I think we just missed the point. You know, we'd rather be right than win and right than operate. So, yeah. And we could dedicate a whole episode to how the right is messing that up. To put a finer point on it, I think one of Andrew's campaign ads the reason I bring it up is you talk early in the book about when you were trying to fundraise from wealthier donors, that $2,700 cap, and you would get these, you know, what you would basically say are these stupid pieces of advice from people who'd never run a presidential campaign. And one of the things that they said, and this really like stuck in my gut when I read it, because I remember seeing how well Andrew was connecting with middle American, predominantly white working class men in those regions. When one of the donors said, quote, you're Asian, won't people in middle America dismiss you for your race, end quote. And you go on to talk about how that's such a deeply racist comment, but it's just it. One of the most moving campaign ads that I saw from your campaign was I wish I could remember the name of the guy. It was a trucker, a white guy. Oh, yeah. Probably Fred Ramey. There was a couple. Yeah. Andrew was the first politician who he ever felt like actually cared about him. It's not that folks who might have been critical of some of the things that Andrew said 
it's not that they didn't ever have a point, right? I want to be clear, right? Yeah. But in my opinion, that ad, right? Or even just taking it away from ads, right? Because ads are ads. Just looking at YouTube videos that I would see that weren't funded by anyone's campaign and seeing how people were reacting to Andrew. Oftentimes, Andrew being the first Asian American that they had actually spoken with for an extended period of time. And them being able to say authentically that I see myself in this man. The thing that frustrated me so much about the backlash that Andrew and your campaign would get about model minority stereotypes, it really, it, I don't mean to, I mean, obviously I was just a voter, right? But it like tore me apart inside because I thought if Andrew making an authentic connection with someone who probably had never said more than five words to someone of Asian descent before isn't making progress for Asian Americans as a whole, then I don't know what is. Yeah, it was, it was heartbreaking intent. And like, I think I try to understand where people are coming from kind of meeting where they're at. And I think we have a Democratic Party in particular that's a, that's a little out of touch. Our economy has accelerated in certain areas and, and really left a lot of people behind. And the lifestyles that you have in New York City or Chicago or LA or some of these big cities are so different than the lifestyle you have in Iowa or Michigan and Alabama and like middle part of the country. It's just an easier narrative to dismiss those folks as behind the times and racist and uneducated or XYZ. But that's, I don't think most people have that lived experience, maybe some instances, but from a lot of time I spent there, I found a lot of amazing people who are just trying to yes make their life a little better, right? Yes. And most don't care about left or right. So Andrew was able to cut through that. I think most, I think the number was like 40-ish percent of Andrew Yang voters wouldn't have voted for anybody if it weren't for Andrew. And by the way, the Democratic establishment hated that. They thought that was a bad thing. You know, you complain about the establishment and uh, that sort of thing. Like we built what I called an identity brand instead of a brand identity. People connect with you. And a lot of the things we did, I call it, you create a like us persona. So like, like us, you're visionary, you're smart, or you're non-traditional, you hate politics, you're optimistic, whatever it is, or people can connect. You find your tribe, right? And we did podcasts and memes and math and some of the crazy things. And then the fun part, but probably what got us in away from establishment the most was I call it, let them in. You have to let people openly connect with you and feel part of your campaign. And that's where you saw things like operationally, we had Facebook groups and rallies or progress bars to show how many donors were getting and set our goals. Or we had discord groups and text threads and things like that that were good for kind of 21st century organizing. But we also, we made him fun yeah, and did everything we could. We did a lot of stunts, (laughs) which were good and bad. I love the little cartoon Andrew graphic on the website that I thought that was so endearing. Yeah, that was... um, Jonathan Chang is a really good artist, but Andrew's like, the team was, we're all entrepreneurs in the beginning. It's like, we need to optimize for the one thing that mattered. And the DNC like said 65,000 donors, you're on the debate stage. And Andrew's like, okay, every single day, we're getting 65,000 donors. That's our goal. That's the goal every single day. Yeah. Someone wants to help. Yeah. Can you get five people to donate a dollar? That was such an engaging part of the book, by the way, when you realize that like this was our way in. Yeah. It was basically either 65,000 unique donors or... It was what, 1% in... 1% in three polls, which we probably were not getting. (laughs) And it was so great how you kind of broke it down, how like you basically focused all of your attention on that one single goal so that everything you were doing was fed through that give us $1 mantra. Yes. You want to meet Andrew? Can you give us a dollar? Like, hey, you want to do this? Can you get 20 people to each give $1? Yep. And it was so interesting watching you break that down throughout that chapter about how you filtered everything through a singular focus and how that ultimately got you to the presidential debate stages. It's wonderful because in politics, we were struggling so much because we are operators, we are entrepreneurs, and there's usually like key variables that you optimize for, like your KPIs or whatever you're just focused on. We got to get this done. 
But in politics, and I kind of said this before, is like you don't always know what to do. And you don't always know, like it's tough to do a cost benefit analysis on what's better use of time. Is it better use of time to try and do a fundraiser because they don't always pay off that well? Is it better use of time to get an endorsement? What does that turn into? Is it better use of time to try and do cable news hits or press or stunts? You know, where do you do? But this was fun. It was like, hey, well, we're dead if we don't get on the debate stage. So 65,000 donors. There were so many politicians, frankly, this was the craziest part. I wrote about this, like most of them didn't do it. Most of them just didn't do it. The big ones didn't have to, right? Like your Biden and Bernie, like they met the polling requirements, but there were, you know, probably 20 plus that didn't meet the polling requirement and none of them prioritized it. So what happened was you had, these articles were hilarious. Who's qualified for the debate stage? Like Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, and Andrew fucking Yang. (laughs) (laughs) That was it. End list. Yeah. And we weren't even included in polls yet, which was wild. And you're like, I guess we have to include him because he's on the stage before Cory Booker and Kirsten Gillibrand, who we feature on our show all the time, right? Whatever it is. So on uh, March 19th, 2019, Vanity Fair coined a new and slightly unwieldy word, Yang Mentum. Hmm. I love that. I blew that one up on the wall too. <laughs> <laughs> Yang Mentum. But speaking of Yang Mentum, the fact that none of you came from a traditional political background you were able to make these aha moments, right? The singular focus on, oh my God, all we have to do here is focus our attention in this one spot and we are guaranteed to get to X, right? As opposed to going in six different directions to hit all those quote unquote traditional campaign avenues. I want to speak to podcasts, right? Because again, that's how I first discovered Andrew via Joe Rogan. And there is this quote from Longshot that I actually copy and pasted to my dad yesterday because it is so breathtaking. I want to read an abridged version of it for our listeners here because it'll gobsmack you. You write, quote, let me put it this way. By the end of the campaign, we had booked Andrew on every single major primetime broadcast, cable news outlet, and late night show in existence. And combined, we raised zero dollars and zero cents from all that time. At best, our appearances drove some mild traffic, 1,000 to 3,000 people per show to our website. Then on February 19th, 2019, He went on the Joe Rogan experience, and within one week, we raised $250,000, almost as much as we had raised since the campaign started. By the end of that February, nearly 2 million people had viewed Joe and Andrew's two-hour conversation on YouTube alone. The audio version of the episode had been listened to by over 10 million. One month after that episode aired, we had raised nearly a million dollars with an average contribution of $13.14, end quote. And again, I just want to hammer home that all the appearances on cable news outlets, primetime broadcasts, late night shows, you raised zero dollars from that. But one appearance on Joe Rogan after he had appeared on Sam Harris, I think a month prior, you raised a quarter of a million dollars in a week. I'd love for you to just speak a little more about how podcasting came to play such a vital role in Andrew's campaign and why exactly you guys decided to pursue that route in the first place. What is it? Desperation breeds innovation or necessity breeds innovation? We're like, we got to get on the Rachel Maddow show. We got to get on the XYZ shows. And we'd get on and then nothing would happen. It was so disappointing. Like, oh, that was a waste. I shouldn't have prepped for that. I think things have changed. And, and the big one of the big numbers, it's really scary to look at, is a decline in institutional trust. We pretty much have lost, we being American citizens, have pretty much lost trust in all of our institutions, particularly the younger generation. And many of them, it's deserved. Like a lot of our institutions have failed us. You can go to the military from Guantanamo Bay or the financial system in 2008 and beyond politics, healthcare. I mean, you go down the list, like there's these institutions like people don't particularly trust. There used to be a world where 
and I was one of these kids, and my mom was certainly one. We, with bated breath, would listen to every word Katie Couric and Matt Lauer were saying on the Today Show or uh, Walter Cronkite. We used to trust these figures on our TV screens or the journalists, right? And that's gone, right? You can go on these shows now and they're like, hey, buy this product. And it's not particularly needle moving. There's some exceptions, right? But not a lot. Where a lot of that trust has gone in personal connection, it's gone to podcasts. And podcasts are so intimate where, you know, you listen at your own pace, your own speed too. You can speed them up or slow them down, right? It's in your ears. You know, you feel like almost you're part of the conversation you're listening. It's slow. You can unpack ideas and you can really get to know somebody. I'll say this. I, I wasn't really heavily involved in the in the mayoral race when Andrew ran, but I was somewhat involved in and but I was doing this podcast with Andrew and the press was looking to just destroy us at all turns. And they were looking to destroy me in particular. Is anyone related to Andrew? If you can't get Andrew, get his staff, right? And they paid staffers to listen to every podcast episode we'd done. And that's all I mean, God bless anybody to listen to all of them. Holy shit. <laughs> One of the things I remember talking to a reporter after they backed off after listening to the podcasts, particularly on me, which I was really humbled by. It was nice, but they were like, after listening that much, we got to know you a bit and we don't think you're an asshole. Wow. I say that, like, one, if you're going to turn a journalist off of writing a shift piece on you, you've done something right. <laughs> but you do get to know the person. Yeah. And so when Joe Rogan's like, wow, I like you. This is cool. Like, how do people help you? And you get to plug that, people go. And I say that as like, I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. I listen to a Buffalo Bills podcast and. I love this guy, Joe Marino, and he does a podcast every day on the Bills. Like, think about it in the offseason. Like, what are you talking about? But I love it. And when he's like, hey, like, I'm doing this charity fundraiser, that sort of thing, I'm way more compelled to donate. You know what I'm saying? Because I feel like I know the guy. So that was, it was just such a better medium. I think we should do presidential debates on podcasts. And I pitched that to the DNC chair, and they looked at me like I had six heads. So I don't think it's happening anytime soon, y'all. But I did try. Honestly, it's only a matter of time, whether it's in that form or another. Probably a YouTube show or something. I don't know. But yeah. I think that one of the reasons to yes and you, Zach, that I think podcasts carry such a weight with listeners, I can probably tie it into my experience as a freelancer in the film industry, right? Because I'm a freelancer and I work in what I call in shorthand, the vouch economy. So I haven't shown my actual resume to almost anyone in over a decade because I get almost all my jobs through vouches. What that means is I'll work at one company for X amount of weeks or X amount of months working on some kind of ad campaign. And then someone will call me or reach out to me and be like, hey, I heard from so-and-so that you worked on this and they liked you. Do you want to work over here? Right? I mean, they might have seen my work on my website, but I got a call or got a connection because someone vouched for me. And in my opinion, when someone appears on the Joe Rogan Experience or Sam Harris or name your favorite podcast, right? Whatever it might be as the listener. When that host has on a guest, especially if this isn't some kind of mainstream, you know, like backed by blah, 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 that's a vouch. When a host that you care about, who you trust, vouches for someone else before that guest has even opened their mouth, that is a ton of goodwill. And I think that helped Andrew a lot. There's a stupid rule in politics. It's like if you're explaining, you're losing. <laughs> yeah. But I found with Andrew, if he was explaining, it was positive. I don't know if we were winning, but you could go on a podcast and unpack some things. I mean, the debates are awful. I, I hate calling them debates because they're not. They're scripted reality TV series, if you will, relatively scripted. I mean, you kind of play your part. And if you don't, they'll shiv you. And there's pros and cons of that. Which is why, by the way, Andrew's fourth wall breaking statement about why their reality TV hits so hard. Oh, yeah. We timed it well because you just watched the whole thing. Like, if you break it at the wrong time, you just kind of look like you're kowtowing or you're trying to be cooler than you are. People don't like this per se, but Donald Trump was the best at this. It's, it's not close. Uh, it was like there was the debate 
where I guess Megan Kelly was coming after him in the first debate and like Megan Kelly's like, you've called women pigs, XYZ, and he interrupts her. He's like, only Rosie O'Donnell gets a laugh. Like she punches a question away and says, How do you expect women in this country to vote for you? And he's like, he literally just deflects the question. He's like, We don't have time for this because we're losing. And if you make me president, I'm gonna make America great again. And obviously he didn't answer the question, but it's just like F you on message, and that's how good debates are. Like Andrew would get terrible questions all the time. We're like, deflect, back to message, and hammer it. And Trump was the best at it. And he's objectively, like no one wants to say it, but if you ignore how dark he is, he's funny. I mean, Andrew had some humor at plays as well. That's the hardest part I've learned and is trying to like, there's a lot of people very, very passionate about how Donald Trump's the root of all evil, they'll say, but there's things he did that were really effective and we tried to use them without, you know, complimenting him too much, if you will, because I'm not a big fan. But there's a reason he won, right? He's wildly effective at a number of things, particularly navigating the attention economy. We still talk about him and he's not even on Twitter anymore. Yeah, I totally agree. Speaking of Andrew kind of learning to use the, this feels even weird to say, but some of Donald Trump's best tactics, if not Donald Trump's rhetoric, one of the things that really stuck out to me was, I think it was after the first kind of mock debate you guys put together, you guys were in a room after, I think what you admit was kind of a a poor showing by Andrew during the mock debate. And you and probably Matt Shinners was with me, I think. Yeah, you and Matt were in a room for about 30 minutes while Andrew was standing outside. And you guys were kind of breaking down how it went and how are we going to approach Andrew about this and how are we going to talk to him about how he can improve, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Finally, you open the door and you start to talk. And then Andrew just kind of lets loose on you and Matt. And he chewed us out real good. But what came after that and how that kind of actually brought all of you closer I think that was one of many points in the book, if I'm just to be frank, that really stood out to me because what came through the book was just what a close relationship and friendship that you and Andrew had and have, which felt really deeply authentic in a way that I don't think maybe a lot of campaign managers' relationships with their candidate necessarily are. And it felt like a friendship, first and foremost, where you guys could be really raw and truthful and honest with one another and even say some harsh words from time to time, but it all came from a place of wanting the best for each other. Am I on point with that? Absolutely, man. It's like one of the greatest things I got out of this was a relationship with with someone I really admire and who knows me really well, and I know him really well. Andrew jokes, because most of the time, if you run for office, the candidate and the campaign manager end up hating each other. (laughs) I have to imagine that that moment where you and Matt were talking about how to handle Andrew and how to make him a better candidate, I imagine that moments like that where Andrew kind of broke the (laughs) kind of meta fourth wall of how candidates and campaign managers are supposed to interact (laughs) and just literally just, I don't want to say cursed you out, but basically was just like, I'm the fucking candidate. I should be able to do what I want, et cetera, et cetera. Kind of called you both on the carpet Mm -hmm. and kind of woke you up to how you were kind of starting to treat him. I imagine that the reason that a lot of campaign managers and candidates end up having a falling out is that they don't have those come to Jesus moments where they're able to be authentic with one another. Oh, yeah. Or it's just, you know, as a campaign manager, you're many times the bearer of bad news. Mm, Don't shoot the messenger. Yeah. Like the first or last line of defense between you and the staff. So, like, think about this. The staff, you know, depending on the campaign, it can be from 10-person staff, two-person staff to, for us, it was like 300, right? At the lower volunteer level, they see Andrew as a god. You know, they're volunteering and they're field organizing, they're trudging through the snow. They're in some ways fans and supporters, right? Who are now working for the campaign because they love the message or candidate. But at the senior level, they're pros. So they see Andrew as like a product, right? A vessel. And so they will be really cold in their feedback. So it'll be like, he was fucking terrible or he can't do this. He's got to stop doing this. He's got to comb his hair better, blah, 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 right? And then whoever is talking to the candidate 
needs to somehow massage that message. So sometimes they don't really massage it and they just give it to them straight. And sometimes they uh, sugarcoat it too much. But the reality is like your relationship ends up being, you have this one person that just criticizes you all the time with everything you fucking do. And that's awful. And so I was in this position many times because I was deciding what I wanted to, you know, campaign managers, it's too many jobs. It's a ridiculous role. <laughs> you know, no Fortune 500 company would put all this. You put it under a CEO type, but it's like having the CEO who's not really in charge because the candidates at the end of the day really in charge, right? There's management of the candidate and there's management of the budget and operations. And depending on the campaign, one of the two is more important or more of a priority, but it's usually the candidate. Um, so I picked most of my time with the candidate on the road because our messenger was so vital to our success and you know, had like a campaign chief and other senior leaders that managed the day-to-day in HQ. So there's that constant battle, right, between road and, and headquarters and what the candidate's doing or not doing and that sort of thing. And yeah, it's tough to keep a positive relationship if you're shitting on the guy all the time. Yang had developed into a much better debater, like so much better after you know three or four weeks of coaching. And we're getting closer to the debate and we do a mock. And he was good, like way better than he was before, but he was still not good, you know? And so we're like trying to find a way to massage this and we took too long. And then he just chewed us out. He's like, this is ridiculous. Like you guys are acting like I didn't help will this thing. You know, like you make me like a puppet. Like that's not who I am. That's not this campaign. And he was right. Totally right. And that, yeah, opened us up to like letting Yang be Yang, you know, like being authentic overall. Um, and that's how we kind of wrote that breaking the fourth wall. We had a pretty good comms director at the time was from West Virginia, like really knew how to speak to people at that level. But she helped us write that thing. So Andrew jokes, like the fact that we like each other speaks to still when you're supposed to have hated each other after an election like that and a race like that uh, speaks to like the deep bond we've established over time, you know? Yeah. I want to kind of circle back to the very first debate that Andrew did when he was uh, seemingly at death's door. He was so ill. It was one moment in which kind of the insanity of media coverage actually kind of worked in your favor because although Andrew's first debate performance, largely because he was so ill, I mean, you go into great detail into how he was basically bedridden. You almost had to wheel him onto the stage, but because he chose not to wear a tie, even though his debate performance wasn't, you know, stellar, wasn't anywhere near what it was going to be a couple debates down the road, almost all of the media coverage focused on the fact that he didn't wear a tie. And that's one instance, I guess, when you could say the kind of ridiculous media narratives that get spun about a candidate works in your favor. I want to circle back to what you said earlier that I, I think our audience should really take a moment to kind of sit with, which was what you were saying about during the mayoral race. Basically, there were journalists who were out to character assassinate you. They were going through your podcast appearances with the sole purpose of trying to literally destroy your career until they found out that you were actually a decent guy and called off the metaphorical dog, so to speak. Because again, you did not come from a political background. You had never run a campaign before. What was it like, just like on a human level, right? Obviously, you have to probably steal yourself against this stuff as a campaign manager. But what was it like experiencing the narratives that were getting spun about Andrew, about you, about your campaign during 2018, 2019, that were not just inaccurate? But we're so wholly removed from the reality as you were experiencing it that it almost seemed like someone was writing about someone entirely else. What was that like to actually experience? And actually, how did you make yourself okay with it, right? Like on just a human level? It's a really good question and probably the most important part because we kind of lose our humanity in this process. Like we're just so quick to just trash somebody online or in an article and like that's a human being. Now, sometimes people deserve it, but not always, right? And It was so weird. We went from completely anonymous to no one covering anything we did to eventually people covering 
not everything we did politically, but anything we did on a human level that was out of, you know, any mistake we made for sure, right? Um, it's covering a lot of our stuff. The short answer was like kind of terrible. The hardest part for me was, was right after we qualified for the debates. So this is like April 2019, maybe. There was a numerically very small, but it was a subset of, let's call it alt-right and far-right, call them what they are, Nazis, if you will, that loved Andrew. They loved the free money situation. It was really crazy because they were white nationalists and he's an Asian American. Yeah, weird bedfellows there. Yeah. Yeah, it was like some of the more progressive policies out there. It was ridiculous, frankly. Um, But the press loved this because it fit their narrative of, oh, our system's still working. The only reason he made it was because of internet trolls, right? This guy's just a clown and people are trying to fuck with the system. So this is a joke and we can dismiss it. Media is media, that sort of thing. But it was really hard because we were getting called racist. We were getting called, you know, Nazi lovers and white nationalists and, and things like that. It was very weird to see Andrew Yang be called a white nationalist. It was awful. I mean, like CNN Town Hall, like Ana Cabrera brought this up. Like this mainstream news outlets, like asking him these questions. Richard Spencer endorsed Andrew and George Stephanopoulos asked him on Sunday morning. Like this is like, it was real shit. And... Andrew was so nonchalant about this, which I think I understand why. Because he's like, I'm not a white nationalist and I'm an Asian man. This is a ridiculous narrative. It's not going to stick. And I think he was right, except from a staff level, we had to live it, right? So this is the human part you're talking about. Like, I'm trying to ramp up a presidential campaign operation. I'm trying to hire people, right? And people are not coming here or kind of ghosting us after two or three interviews because... They don't want to work for a guy who's being accused of being racist, you know, and we're losing talent. The staff is like, I don't know where the volunteers are. You've got some assholes coming in the volunteer group and other nice volunteers being like, I don't want to work here. Right. We had these pink hats that were really popular in like the internet culture is like pink Yang vaporwave hat. Yeah, it's pretty cool hats. They were amazing. They were so cool. But you had, you know, a range of my grandma thought it was cool to actual Nazis putting it on the Pepe the Frog meme in their profile picture. We seek the counsel of anti-hate groups and nonprofits and experts on this. And we we didn't know what to do. Their solutions, I thought, were awful. They wanted us to just ban the pink hat. Because we like did denounce it, right? Like what you're supposed to do. But it wasn't really working. And the more we felt we denounced it, the more I was drawing attention to it. But they were like, ban the pink hat. And I was like, well, what happens if they make a pink shirt or then a green hat? Banning felt like the wrong thing. And I was so bad, man. I was grinding my teeth at night really bad. And you had to get a mouth guard. Yeah, I had to get a mouth guard. I remember calling my dad, like, I like, broke down. I don't know if it was this particular issue that I was really sad about. It was just like the overwhelming weight of like, holy shit, you know, they're coming after us. Why I think this story is so upsetting to me is having read the book, right? Having read Longshot, understanding what your biography is. Before this, I had a decent understanding of Andrew's biography, where he comes from, you know, the story about the hut that his father grew up in why Andrew decided to run for president, why you decided to support him and become his campaign manager when you could have literally done anything else. You could have stayed in a cushy six-figure job, to use your words. Oh, great job, man. I think why it's so upsetting, and it speaks to, I think, a larger problem within our politics and why people are so bitter and untrusting of mainstream media sources and politics in general is because you lay it out pretty plainly at the beginning of the book that the reason you decided to take this leap with Andrew on, you know, for all intents and purposes was, as the book's titled, a total long shot, right? Why Andrew decided to step away from Venture for America and run for president 
because as he said, he is not insane. He would have done anything else but run for president if he thought there was another way to improve our country, right? Again, this has nothing to do with whether or not a listener to this podcast agrees with Andrew's politics. What this is about is whatever Andrew's politics would have been, make them whatever you want in this hypothetical campaign. Make Zach's politics whatever you want in this hypothetical scenario. What I think is deeply upsetting is no one goes to volunteer for Habitat for Humanity or goes to volunteer at a soup kitchen or starts an organization like Suit Up and gets called a Nazi or a white supremacist for wanting to help other people. (laughs) And the reason that you and Andrew ultimately started this campaign, and again, listeners don't have to agree on policy, right? The reason you started the campaign from nothing was because you both thought there was something deeply wrong with our country that you felt you could help address. Our politics will never get fixed if good people, right, regardless of how you feel about people's policies, if good people who are trying to make a fundamental change to make our country better in the same way that people would volunteer at a soup kitchen or Habitat for Humanity or any other organization they spend time with hoping to make a change. If every time someone tries to do something good, they're called a white supremacist, how many more people are going to try and do something good? It's so deeply upsetting. And that's why it was upsetting to me because I literally saw in Andrew's campaign that he didn't have to do it. I'm not going to name the politician, but there was a big Vanity Fair magazine cover where they quote him saying, I was born to do this or I was born for this. You know, there are so many presidential campaigns where you can see in their eyes that ever since they were like a baby, they want to run for president because whatever, the power, the prestige, what have you. Mm -hmm. And so when someone comes along and wants to do something fundamentally good and gets dragged through the mud like this, it's just it. it, Anyway, again, I know you didn't ask for this rant, but I just have to say it. It's so deeply upsetting. Well, thank you, man. It's super insightful. I was, I was like so frustrating because Andrew's been called these things. I've been called these things. I've had, you know, the campaign called certain things. It's so crazy. I mean, I actually put this in the book. There's headlines on every single, <laughs> every single major Democratic campaign was chewed out for like not being diverse enough or not being left enough. And it's like, okay, well, if the leaders of the left movement can't get this right. Like no one's getting this right. Right. Like everyone, no, or they're not safe. No one's safe. Right. It, it was always frustrating. Is like you take three minutes and look into their like my background or Andrew's background. Like you should have this a simple conclusion. Like, are they perfect? Of course not. Like I'm, I'm a white kid from Connecticut. Right. I'm not going to do it all right. But I'm also clearly an ally. Right. Or trying to be, which I think is uh, important in this world, especially when having worked on Wall Street and now navigated the Democratic Party and some of the Republican Party, like I have a very good sense of who the bad guys actually are, you know? <laughs> yeah. And they're very, very different than me. And I may not be perfect. I'm clearly not. But that doesn't like, <laughs> like let's, let's let's identify the bad guys first um, before we come after the Yangs of the world or the Zacks of the world. Like, oh, look, I'm not perfect. I'm not saying not, this isn't a holier than thou thing. I'm just saying at least we're trying. And that's hard. What helps me out, like I framed this photo in my in my apartment. Uh, it's the man in the arena quote from Teddy Roosevelt. Have you heard this quote? Some people haven't. Yeah, but I'd love for you to share it. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's, a, uh, it's like three sentences, but it's worth every second. Of it. It's like the man in the arena. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms to great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. And 
that's like kind of what keeps me going. It's like, if you're going to do anything, they're going to shiv you. <laughs> you can go from Mother Teresa to Jesus Christ to Gandhi. I mean, they killed Jesus, right? Um, he's like, if you study Jesus, you're just trying to help. And the reality is doing anything, you're going to piss people off. Now, we have a lot of bad guys that get a lot of hate too. So it's, it's not always easy to identify. Just because someone's getting hated on doesn't mean they're good. So to start to get us towards the finish line for this conversation, I guess what I want to say is two things. The first, kind of a statement on what you just said. And second, a question I want to put to you about where you think we go next with our politics and political campaigns specifically. To go back to you know why you and Andrew were smeared during the campaign and why other candidates oftentimes would just simply not get that same kind of attention or same kind of accusations is. And I think a lot of folks, a lot of voters and people who are interested in politics are kind of waking up to this because of alternative sources of media like podcasts, et cetera, where politicians and candidates get to kind of speak more plainly and for longer periods of time is it's oftentimes simply an establishment versus quote unquote anti-establishment battle where the weapons of, oh, you're a racist, oh, you're this, oh, you're that, are used to try and besmirch or smear candidates who are really a threat to the establishment, not necessarily bad people. Traditional media structures or traditional political campaign structures are trying to work within their best interests to keep their power, like any large organization would do. I'm sympathetic to why they would want to do it. I just wish that, and this is a pipe dream, I know, but there are so many good people out there who want to do good things. And ultimately, your book, Longshot, is a story about how you and Andrew and the rest of the campaign were so successful in taking, again, someone with zero name recognition outside of what he was doing with Venture for America to 3 million social media followers in 2019 and millions more now. You use your experience as a way to help teach others how they could do something similar. And why I'm making the point to... I think what is so deeply rotten with our politics and why the current environment is making more Andrews coming out of the woodwork more difficult is I think what you do with Longshot is you put a very clear path about how people who, like you and Andrew, want to make our country a better place, want to make the world a better place, regardless of their politics, can go about doing that. That's why I think Longshot, the book, is so deeply important and why it worries me that there are seemingly so many folks out there who want to prevent good people from doing good things. Hmm. I think that's well said. And I think uh, what I try to do in the book is essentially three things. One, like in no particular order, like the, the crazy story of how it happened is still fun. So that's like part of it. Um, but the other two are one, like a playbook on like what we did that I hope others can take. Um, and there's some relatively actionable takeaways that I think can be applied to a lot of different industries. But then the third one is really say, hey, kind of look forward and move the conversation even more forward is that Based on the way the attention economy and our political system is working right now and how people are who are going to be competitive here need to respond and are going to respond, what does that mean in the future? You know, your successful politicians are gonna be the ones, you know, contending in the attention economy. And for every one Andrew Yang who's like a rational human being with some good marketing chops and some good ideas that are catchy, you're gonna have other Marjorie Taylor Greens, et cetera. Or even like the squad, if you will, if you want to go left or right here, where they're just, they're young, they know the attention economy, but they're uh, they're not really compromising, right? They're very, very strong-willed in what they're running for. They're running on not single issues, but almost single platforms, if you will. Uh, let's call it the MAGA platform, or it's almost the Bernie Medicare for all platform. And in some ways, it'll be exciting because there'll be a lot of new people joining the political arena. But also, it's going to be tough because in order for them to 
get notoriety and attention and things like that and to to compete, they're going to have to kind of draw their line in the sand that they can never move. So I'm in the camp, like I I know that there's plenty of people who I like to disagree, but I'm in the camp, like, look, if we can't get to Medicare for all, I would happily take Medicare for 80% or 90% or even 50%. If we could get 50% better than where we are right now, I like it, right? Like this new gun bill that comes out, like it's not the most effective thing. I don't think it's going to be that great, but it is better than where we were. So we should support that, right? That's my mentality, right? Like progress, not perfection, because we're just getting stuck. But there are people that disagree with that. There's more purists than me, and I respect their opinion. But that's, to me, you're going to have more purists running for office and that's going to pose a whole new set of challenges and themes, I think, over the coming you know, years and decades. Yeah. Then that takes us to our final question, Zach. In the book, you have an interlude where you stop at October 1st, 2019, and kind of mark that as the high point for the campaign before eventually things started to kind of sputter out. And I think it was after the New Hampshire primary, it was when Andrew bowed out of the campaign. So what you do in the book is a really fantastic job of showing us, the reader, how you were able to take a long shot like Andrew and get him on the debate stage five times, out fundraise, establish political candidates who'd been you know, in politics for decades, get thousands of supporters at your rallies, raise $10 million in a single quarter. There were so many metrics that you hit that two years prior, I don't imagine probably any of you thought was even potentially possible. And yet you did it by pursuing alternative pathways, alternative sources of media, alternative strategies, like just getting a dollar from 65,000 people. And you were so successful in getting to that point on October 1st, 2019. You spend the second half of the book kind of in a, a post-mortem style, sort of breaking down where you weren't able to leverage those alternative pathways to get to the presidency. So I guess my question to you is, for future candidates, or if Andrew runs again in 2024, who knows, or other candidates who want to pursue a similar path, who want to try similar tactics that you lay out in the book, Longshot, have our political mechanisms, have the way that presidential campaigns and political campaigns in general run today are they different enough? Have the things that the 21st century has brought about, like social media, podcasts, memes, et cetera, have those yet been able to move the needle enough that a candidate can not only get to where Andrew was in October 1st of 2019, but also potentially get to something like the presidency or statewide office or something? I guess my question is, are we there yet? And where do we go next? Hmm. So here's what I'd say. I, I think presidential politics are very different than local politics because of the attention economy. Like people naturally identify with the president more than they do a senator, governor, or mayor in certain areas, especially depending where you live, right? No one outside of New York City really gives a crap about the New York City mayor's race. And that's probably the most prominent mayor in the country, right? Like we just don't care about stuff that doesn't touch us very much. So on the presidential level, you're seeing it happen. Trump essentially did it. Obama was a somewhat of a version of that in terms of change and an outsider, but I mean, nowhere near as much as someone like a Bernie is. And Bernie was pretty close, right? So you're seeing that happen much more on the presidential national scale. But where real change is going to happen, and you've kind of learned with all of these presidents, like they really only have so much power, right? They change the narratives and they change the culture and they change the direction of the parties, but they're not always able to change much on policy besides maybe one or two big items. A lot of the stuff that will really matter is the local races. And those are harder, mainly because of the infrastructure of our system is that there's not a lot of people that vote in primaries. So the people that vote in primaries tend to be really far left or right, or like team Dem, team Republican, like the traditionalists, right? And it's hard to register. It's hard to switch parties. There's a lot of things Andrew's working on now at Forward. He's trying to fix a lot of this. 
So the attention economy matters a lot there, but a lot less because you don't have to really break through as much because you're not trying to get the average person or a casual person. You're trying to get diehard Dems or diehard Republicans who are already watching local news and reading about the race and things like that. I mean, Captain Garcia and the New York City mayor's race was at 2% and not raising any money. And then the New York Times endorsed her and she went up to 20 plus percent in a couple of weeks. That's how it works in a lot of these local races. That is slowly changing. That's cracking, but there's some infrastructure stuff that needs to happen, which is kind of my fear is that on the local races, people are just going to build an identity brand just as far left, as far right as they can, because that's the only way to get the base all riled up. It's tough to be almost like Andrew was a bit of a moderate and stand out if it's not a bigger race. I hope that changes over time. That's what you're you're going to start seeing this. It's going to play out differently by tier, right? Local city council races, mayor races, Congress, Senate, and then up to president. Well, Zach, this conversation could have gone six different ways. Right, right. I'm looking at all the notes that I left on the floor, but I don't regret a minute of this conversation. So thank you for writing the book. Thank you for sharing yourself and what got you where you were with the campaign. And thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, man. I'll say this. I know you're a marketer full-time or making movies and videos and cool stuff, but you're a very good interviewer. This was fun. So um, whether it's a side hustle or a full-time job in the future, I'm excited to see where you go. Thanks so much, Zach. That means a lot. Thanks for having me, man. Seriously. Tune in July 19th for a conversation with Chris Smith and Jack DeSena, co-creators of the high-concept sketch comedy channel, Chris and Jack. Thank you for listening. And wherever we go next, I hope... You'll be there too.